Okay, this morning we are going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 1. Now, if you uh, don't know your Bibles well, uh, in the bulletin there has been printed a sheet with all the passages that I'm going to use with the main ones listed by numbers. So if you follow along, that'd be great. So you can see what is being said today from the Word of God, because the Word of God is, is our authority and tells us what the truth is. So welcome this morning on this great holiday uh, that we have uh, to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I begin, let's, let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you this morning for bringing us here on this beautiful day from a long winter. And Lord, it's nice to smell the flowers, to feel the warmth of the sun. But Lord, even if we feel those things our whole life, if we don't know you, who is our creator and our Lord and our Savior, then it's not going to mean much. It's going to mean nothing, actually. But Lord, I pray that all those who come under the hearing of the word of God may come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. So Romans chapter 1 And let me read that passage of Scripture for you. Verse 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now, think for a moment. Why... Christianity is different from all the rest out there that claim to know the way to God. How do you know you have the right way? How do you know that you will be in heaven with Jesus when you pass from this earth? How do you know the others who have claimed to be the Christ are not the genuine ones? Many have challenged the validity of Christianity. One such person is the best-known atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins. In his book, The God Delusion, which he wrote in 2006, he launched an attack on all religious faiths with a specific attack on Christianity. Dawkins said in his book, and I quote, There is no evidence in favor of God's existence. The Bible is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents. The only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is that the Gospels are an ancient document, while the Da Vinci Code is a modern fiction. And the central doctrine of Christianity is a barking mad as well as viciously unpleasant. He means by that the the resurrection. As for Jesus, he said, he probably existed. But the idea that he came back to life after being dead and buried is absurd. Dawkins mocks the thought of resurrection, yet pinpoints the critical issue. How much time does he spend in assessing the evidence in his book? What proof does he produce to show that it never happened? Well, there's only one answer to that question, or those questions. One answer, none. He gives no evidence. Probably he thought it was so silly that it didn't even take, he couldn't even give the time to give evidence. But in saying that, Scripture mentions another well-known person who specifically made an attack against Christianity maybe more fierce than any man who ever lived. And if you notice, 
in verse number one of Romans, it tells us right there. It says, Paul. Paul. See, the gospel had the power of arresting this man called Paul. Now, who was Paul? The Apostle Paul's background made him an unlikely candidate to be a follower of Jesus Christ. His given name at birth was Saul. His parents were solid Jewish people and can trace their ancestry right back to the elite Old Testament tribe of Benjamin. He studied under Gamal, one of the greatest ever Jewish scholars. And when the Christian church came into existence, he saw it as a direct threat to his Jewish faith. The idea for him that a carpenter's son from a small town called Nazareth, who, had ex- who was executed as a common criminal and was was both human and divine, was way more than Saul could stand. So he became a religious terrorist. He was determined to wipe out this blasphemous group of Christ followers and embark on a search and destroy mission wherever he could find them. In fact, he dragged them before local courts and he tried to force them to blasphemy. Now, if you notice, under Paul, the the main passage of Scripture, the first text in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, on the sheet there, it says this about Paul. Giving his testimony, he says, And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So he's talking about himself. So he hauled them back to Jerusalem for punishment, which sometimes meant the death sentence. In fact, Scripture records in Acts chapter 8 that Saul approved the execution of a Christian preacher named Stephen. And Stephen was stoned to death while Paul stood there, while Saul stood there and saw him die then something amazing happened. Saul became a Christian. How does that happen? How does God save a terrorist? Well, he saves a terrorist like he saves anybody. That the message of the gospel is so powerful. The message of of the gospel comes from God to man that we know in our hearts when we hear the truth, this is the truth. And then once you find the truth, you don't have to search for anything else. Because you found it. It's the end of the road. The truth is the end of the road. So he became convinced that Jesus did rise from the dead and that Jesus was God. It is the Apostle Paul who writes the book of Romans that we're in right now. He became a preacher of the faith he once tried to destroy. Now, if you look quickly at Romans chapter 1, verse 1 again, there are three things that happened to Paul, at least because when he came to Christ. The first one, is it says he became a bond slave. That means that the Lord had a unique claim upon him, and he knew it. See, the slave of Jesus Christ he became, a willing, obedient bond slave. Now, it's interesting that this term used here as slave really comes from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, also on your sheet, there, what happens is that if somebody was a slave and they wanted to stay with their slave master, they would go to their slave master and they would say, listen, I love you. I love my family, and I want to be your slave forever. And this is what it says in Exodus. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out and become a free man. Then the master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and the master shall pierce his ear with an owl, 
and he shall serve him permanently. So see, in a, in a sense, this is what's going on with Paul. Paul comes to Christ. He realizes who Christ is. He realizes he's God, that he is the resurrected one, and that his message coincides and fulfills the Old Testament that he is so convinced by it, he makes himself a willing slave. And then the second thing that happens is that he becomes an apostle. An apostle is somebody who is a delegate, an envoy, a messenger of God. And so he becomes an apostle by God because he saw the risen Christ when he met him on the road to Damascus. He heard the risen Christ, and so he becomes an apostle with all authority and signs that apostles should have, and he begins to preach the message of the gospel. And so the Bible also says in verse 1, he says he became set apart unto God. That means that actually the word set apart is an interesting word. It means off horizon, meaning that he... And that means the idea is being removed from one sphere or place to another place or sphere. In other words, Paul, Saul, who became Paul, the apostle, was moved from the sphere of sin and condemnation to the sphere of salvation. He was, re- he was moved from the, the sphere of rebellion against God, wanting to persecute the church and go against Christ, to become a servant or a willing bond slave. And he went from having a wrong standing with God, believing that to be right with God, I must keep the law, and keeping the law that God would accept me. The only problem is that the law was given to show us we're sinners, not to save us. It was never given to save us. The Ten Commandments were never given to save anybody. They were given to show us that we are sinners to the max and that we can't keep the law of God. In fact, we are condemned by it. And so we're in a, a, a state. So Paul went from having a wrong standing with God to have a, having a right standing with God. And isn't that what we want? We want to know, are we right with God? When we die, are we right with him? That is the message. So see, our whole horizon ought to be dominated by Christ, and all our boundaries in life should be determined by our Lord Jesus Christ. So, that brings me to this, that Paul now writes about three facts about Jesus Christ that I hope this morning will help diminish your doubts and fears and send you on your way rejoicing. And it's not just about the resurrection, of course, that is the pinnacle of the truth of the gospel it is many more things so these scriptures these main points come out of the scripture scriptures specifically the next three verses so here's the first thing the word of god says about jesus christ in verse number two jesus is the uniquely predicted one now that's number one on your sheet he is the uniquely predicted one now look at the passage there in romans Chapter 1, verse 2. Now, in other words, that there was no one else that was promised he would come so far in advance than Jesus. Look what it says, verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, in that passage of Scripture, a lot of things are going on. have no time to get into all of them. But in Isaiah, chapter 7, Scripture tells us that Jesus would be born of a virgin. His name would be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. In Isaiah 52 and 53, Scripture tells us that Jesus would be beaten beyond recognition. He would become the suffering servant in his first coming. In Psalm 1, Scripture tells us that people will cast lots for his clothing and that Jesus' body would never experience corruption. In other words, way back in the Old Testament... 700 years before Jesus was even born. The Bible tells us something everybody thinks is impossible would become possible. And what was that? Well, 
Acts chapter 2, verse 24 tells us. It says this. And of course, what, what do we think is impossible? You know what we think is impossible? Resurrection. We think that we're just going to live and die. And our bodies go to the grave and we're, we get eaten by worms and that's it. The Bible says there will be a resurrection, but Christ had to rise first before we could rise. And Scripture says something, listen, yes with men, it's, it's mind-boggling to think that someone could rise from the dead. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, what we say is impossible, God says something else is impossible. And what is that? It says this, but God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. It was impossible for Christ to be held by the power of death. That's what God says. So this was something impossible, but it was possible with God. So all this, hundreds of years before Christ would come to earth in the flesh, every sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament spoke of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Everything has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled with 100% accuracy. And no one has ever had that done for them in human history except Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look on your sheet there, under one, the passage of scripture in first peter says this it says as to this salvation notice what it says the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry seeking to know what person or time the spirit of christ within them was indicated as he it says predicted the sufferings of christ and the glories to follow So see, it was the Old Testament that predicted the sufferings of Christ and all the glories to follow. Not just the New Testament makes it clear, but it's right there in the Old Testament that this happened. See, God did not keep the gospel a secret. It's never been a secret. Christ had sufficient announcement before he actually came to earth. That's the first thing about Christ. Here's the second thing Paul says about Christ. And it's found in verse number 3 of Romans chapter 1, that Jesus is the only one with such a unique prodigy. He's the only one who had this kind of lineage. And if you notice what it says in verse 3 of Romans 1, it says this, and this is point number 2 on your sheet. All right, here's the scripture for it. It says, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Now, scripture tells us, Jesus would be born of a descendant of King David. That makes him a king. It also says, born according to the flesh. That makes him a man. So we, we put two together, he's a king who's a man, but it goes further than that. But not right here, it doesn't. See, before we, we really trace the lineage of Jesus, I want you to notice what it says here in this passage of Scripture. It says, concerning his son who was born. That word born is translated made or come, and then here born, and others have translated it human nature. And the point is this, that Jesus began to be something he was not before. The seed of David according to the flesh. Now that means that Jesus has a lineage that nobody else has. That the lineage of Jesus Christ was found, is found from Adam, the first man, to Jesus, the second Adam. Adam The man was the first Adam. Jesus was the second Adam. And so the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Luke gives us two genealogies of Christ. Matthew gives us the legal line of Christ because you have to legally prove who you are to become a king. 
And then Luke gives us the physical line of Christ to prove that he was a human. And so it went like this, that Matthew says, from Solomon to Jeconiah to Jacob, the father of Joseph, to Joseph, the husband of Mary, to Messiah the king. That's how it went. And then the physical line was from Nathan all the way down to Heli, or then Mary, and then, of course, proving that he was sinless man. Now, if, if you looked up those passages of Scripture, you would find it's recorded there that from Abraham to David was 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon was 14 generations. And from the, the deportation of Babylon to Christ or Messiah was 14 generations. In other words, 42 generations, Jesus can trace his lineage back and all document it. That's, if my math is correct, about 1,680 years. So, see, in other words, we can prove from Scripture that Jesus was Messiah King, and he has a legal line that came through his father, and we see that Jesus has a physical line that came through his mother. So, can anyone trace their lineage back 42 generations? No one can do that. See, the Bible says that when Jesus would come the first time, he would come from the seed of a woman. That means he would come out of mankind. It says that he would come from the seed of Abraham. That means he would be born a Hebrew. It also says that he would become from the tribe of Judah. That means he would become a great ruler. And that front, it says that he would come from the household of David the king. That means he would be of the seed of David. So the New Testament begins and ends with reference to Jesus as the son of David. The messianic line was exhausted in Jesus. In fact, it says in Scripture, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Yes, Jesus was truly human, unmarked by sin. He is a savior. He is a, an anointed one, meaning he is king and he is Lord. And just as the scripture said, so people may speak of God and having a religious experience, and some people may be very involved involved in religion, yet miss salvation. And it's for this reason they miss the person. They miss Jesus Christ. Because, you see, the gospel is Jesus. Jesus is not a mere prophet or a messenger of the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. See, we follow Christ. We don't follow ten rules of this and ten rules of do this and don't that. We follow Christ. And as we follow Christ and who he is, he begins to transform those who know him. Now, by the way, no one has ever done that before, and that is to trace their lineage. But if you notice in Luke 38, listed under number two, it says this. This is even, even more incredible. Who can trace their lineage back before Adam? Before Adam. Adam was the first man. Who can trace their lineage back to before Adam? No one, but Christ can. It says in Luke 3.38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That goes beyond. Who can do that? No one. See, in other words, in the humanity of Jesus, we can only see or have a limited understanding of who Jesus is. In every respect, Jesus was a genuine human being. As an infant, he needed to be nursed and fed and washed and trained like any other child. He passed through his teenage years into manhood and for about 30 years was virtually unknown. 
you would probably not pick Jesus out of a crowd. You would probably not do that because he was just a regular person. He was acquainted with emotional ups and downs. He was at times, the Bible says, greatly distressed and troubled. At times he rejoiced and sang. He knew what it was to be tempted as we are, though uniquely without sin. That means his temptation went further than any temptation we could ever experience because he had the full brunt of the power of temptation. We don't. Everything about Jesus was also unique and unparalleled in comparison to other human beings. His conception was unique. His quality of life was unique. And his voluntary death in the place of others, bearing the penalty for their sin, was unique. He was born of the seed of David, a man. But that's not the final fact. I'm not underestimating his humanity. However, that is not all. If it was the final fact that Jesus was just a man, then Christianity would fall into the same category alongside of Mohammed, who died in 632 A.D., or Buddha, or Confucius, or Guru Nanak. Well, you don't even know who, probably never even heard of him. But it doesn't matter because he was just another would-be prophet. By the way, all these are dead and still occupy their tombs. See, it's just like the apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church. And also under number two, you'll see that Corinthians chapter 15 says, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. In other words, if Christ just came and became a human and died, then what's the point? He went on to say in the next passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. He is God in the flesh. See, Jesus started something. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. The power of eternal death has no power over those who believe in Christ because they'll be part of that first resurrection. See, this brings me to my next and last point, which distinguishes Jesus from all the rest. And that's this. The resurrection takes us beyond his humanity. In number three on your sheet, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is the only one pulls apart from any other human being because he was uniquely resurrected. It says in verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, in other words, the resurrection is what essentially makes Jesus different from all the earthly would-be prophets and messiahs. They did not rise from the dead victorious. They didn't rise at all. They all died left in their decaying corruption. But not so with Christ. Christ is risen. In fact, this word in our passage, in verse number 4, who was declared the Son of God, is an interesting term. It means to determine or fix. It means to designate or declare. It means a boundary or a marked-off limit. Some translations have translated it marked or declared. We get our English word horizon from it. It's actually the Greek word horizon. So scripture is saying that Jesus is fully divine, God's son. The Bible says that in his resurrection, he was declared the son of God with power. Now this does not mean that the resurrection made Jesus the son of God. 
it demonstrated he was the Son of God. So the point is that as clearly as the horizon divides the earth from the sky, so the resurrection divides Jesus from the rest of humanity. His eternal deity was strikingly and clearly manifested through the physical resurrection. And so the resurrection proved that all that went before was true and demonstrated that Jesus is the divine Son. And if you notice in verse 4, Paul puts it, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection declared the true identity of Jesus Christ. Simply this, that Jesus was not only a man, but he was God. And he had authority over death. And he had authority over demons. He had authority over all things. This very thing proved that. An agnostic professor once said to a little girl who believed in the Lord Jesus, there have been many who have claimed to be Christ. How can you be sure who told you the truth? Which one do you believe? Without hesitation, the little girl replied, I believe the one who rose from the dead. Boy, what wisdom comes out of the mouth of babes sometimes, right? So my friend, really, the resurrection enables us to see Jesus as he really is and what he is. He is God. And that is good news. Without Jesus, there is no good news. There is no hope for everlasting life. There is no freedom from slavery of sin and its condemnation. There is no from faith to sight in the promises of God. There There are none of those things. So Jesus was a man, but he was also God. He was also the resurrected one. On one occasion, Michelangelo turned to his fellow artist and said with frustration in his voice, why do you keep filling gallery after gallery with endless pictures of the one theme of Christ in weakness, Christ on the cross, and most of all, Christ hanging dead? He asked, why do you concentrate on the passing episode as if it were the last word, as if, certain, as, as if the curtain dropped down on disaster and defeat? The dreadful scene was only for a few hours, he said. But the unending eternity, Christ is alive. Christ rules and reigns and is triumphant. That's what we should be drawing pictures of most, is that. And so, of course, Michelangelo was right. Even though the cross is vitally important, without it we couldn't be saved either, Because the redemption of Jesus Christ accomplished everything for us, we must not emphasize his death to the exclusion of his resurrection victory. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. No one could be saved. No one. Now, saying all that, you may be saying to yourself this, so what? If you are, you're not thinking straight. You should be saying, now what? Now what do I do? You should be saying, where do I stand? See, you see, because the resurrection emphatically declares Jesus Christ is God, it leaves us with several momentous implications. And here's the first one. Because he is God and has risen from the dead, all his claims are true. Everything that is said about him is true. In fact, under number three, you'll see in John chapter 8 and verse number 12, remember this, what it says? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
That was a claim that Jesus made directly. Now, that claim destroys the popular idea that everyone has the right to choose their own moral standards and that no one else has the right to contradict them. That challenge that goes smack in the face of that kind of thinking. See, Jesus reflected the true nature of God in which there was no darkness at all. Jesus also said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus emphatically declares and claims, and that claim is really direct, that he was the only means of entering into a relationship with God. He was the only means by which you get into the presence of the Father. There's no other way to go. Well, that point blank contradicts the fashionable ideas that all religions lead to God. It's just not true. And you know what? Most people know it. The only way to get right with God is by a personal commitment to Jesus Christ who came into the world to do what? To save sinners and then laid down his perfect life in the place and on behalf of sinners where it says the righteous, Jesus Christ, for the unrighteous, that's all of us, unrighteous, that he might what? Bring us to God. So that means you cannot get right with God by following a philosophical system nor by going through religious rituals and ceremonies, nor by doing the best you can. And the reason for that is that your own knowledge will not save you. Neither will your cleverness, nor will you, your great effort trying to do good avail you. None of those things will help you. Matter of fact, if you rest or trust in those things, they will condemn you. The only one who can release the condemnation is Jesus Christ. So the first claim, is the first thing is that because Jesus rose from the grave and is God, then everything he claims about himself is true. The second thing is all the warnings in Scripture are true. All the warnings are true. See, God the Father sent Jesus into the world to do what? To rescue us, right? He was on a rescue mission. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 17, right under point number 3, it says this, and didn't put the whole verse there, but it says this. It says not to condemn the world, right? Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to rescue it, right? He did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. Now, that doesn't mean that every human being is going to be saved because Jesus said that. It means that those who come and believe in Jesus Christ are part of that group of people. See, Jesus taught that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and sin is a tyrant that imprisons us and from which we have no power to escape. We cannot escape from our sin or its power. We have no ability to do it. So sin keeps us as slaves our whole life. We bounce from one sin to another sin, to this sin, to that sin. The sin that we're committing now, we forgot the sins that we committed yesterday. But God has not forgotten. And see, this is where the warnings come in. Because Jesus also warned that he came to, into the world to seek and to save that which was what? Lost, right? Well, a lost person doesn't know the way, even though they may think they do. In other words, God did not give us a map. Well, he did give us a map, the Word of God. But he didn't say, you know, everybody's not born with, you know, we're born with a map saying, okay, this is how you get to God, this is how you go to heaven. 
So, see, we're lost. We don't know how to get there. See, a person who doesn't know how to get somewhere is determined to be a lost person, which underlines really the true condition of all people. If nothing is done about it, if someone doesn't tell somebody who is lost how to get on the right road, then they'll be lost forever, paying the horrific penalty that a holy God rightly demands for all their sins. In fact, on the day of judgment, Jesus will say to those who did not trust him, in Matthew 25, verse 41, in your, on your sheet, it says this, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I'll just say this about this. The devils and his angels are eternal beings. They cannot die. So that means hell is an eternal place. And because you and I are created in the image of God, our souls are eternal. Our souls do not die. Our souls have to occupy an, an eternal place. That eternal place is either hell or heaven. There is no in-between. There is no such thing as purgatory. The Bible never teaches about it. There's no such place as limbo. The Bible, Scripture, never teaches that. There's only heaven in the presence of God and hell being separated from God for all eternity. That's all there is. Jesus further warns his hearers in John chapter 8, verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. See, to die in your sins means to die with every one of your sins of thought, of word, of deeds, counted against you when you stand before God who says of heaven that nothing unclean will ever enter into it. So sin makes us unclean before God. Sin makes us unable to go into the presence of God. Sin separates us from a holy God. We cannot overcome sin ourselves. We can't do anything about sin ourselves. Jesus also told those who were rejecting him in John 8.21, he then said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, if you die in your sins, you can't go where Jesus is. All right? You can't do that. So people will be condemned not only because of an, an accumulation of their sinful thoughts, words, and deeds, but they will be condemned for the greatest sin of refusing to accept the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he offers them freely by his grace. See, that's the greatest of sin. Saying, I don't believe. I got my own way. My religion is private. Leave me alone. Let me live my life. Right? And, you know, you know, and I know people have said that, right? People think that all the time. That's what their mindset is. And they're comfortable in it. But see, they're comfortable because they don't know what's on the other side. They don't know it's appointed for man to die and then what? The judgment. They don't know that. See, it's not really the greatest leveler is death, the greatest leveler is judgment. Because judgment's going to send us away from God forever without Christ. So there's a third implication, and it's this. That all his promises are true. All of Jesus' promises are true. Jesus speaking to those who were shackled by religious rules and regulations, vainly hoping that observing these would make them right with God. He promised them probably the greatest invitation in all the Bible in Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 28. Right on your sheets, it says this. 
It says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, my yoke upon you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's an invitation. Jesus is saying, hey, all you people that are burdened by life and burdened by your sin and and burdened by the heaviness of the load, come, and I'll give you rest. But I'll not only give you rest for your minds, I'll give you rest for your souls, for your eternal being. I'll give you rest there. See, this promise is still in effect today, right now. Now, just follow the argument right, right to the conclusion. Just follow the argument. And what is the argument? Here it is. There's a God. Right? He's the eternal judge. Here am I, the sinner. God demands certain things of me and has made them quite clear and plain in his law. Of course, I also have a conscience that God gave me. And my conscience also attest to the things I've done wrong. And God will use that too in judgment. I have to appear before him. Do what I will, I cannot avoid that. And I'm guilty. And I'm told that for the guilty, there is nothing but damnation in hell. But, thank the Lord for that word, here comes the gospel offer, which tells me that Christ, having died for me, God is willing and ready to pardon and forgive me and to give me new life. And that he calls upon me to leave my sin and to give myself definitely to him. See, that's the argument. It's the only way out. It's the only way of safety. Refusal means eternal damnation. Acceptance means eternal life. See, the offer is there now. It's opened at this very moment. And surely there is only one thing to do, and that is to act at once. That if you have never come to a place in your life to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Today is the day. Today is the day. Because you are not guaranteed, nor am I, tomorrow. And you can only take hold of the gospel through Christ. As it says in the fifth verse of Romans chapter 1, for whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith. That's what Paul preached. Obey, obey the message. Come and believe it. So today, Jesus promises to everyone who genuinely turns from leaning on religion or personal moral performance and only trust in him, he will give them peace of heart and mind and an assurance that they have been forgiven and are made clean, able to come into the presence of God when they die. And it won't be about what you've done. It will all be about what Christ has done. And that's what gives us entry into the kingdom of God. It's like the last two verses on our sheet that I'll end with this morning. Look what it says in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And then the last passage. Jesus said to her in John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Wrap your mind around that statement. 
And then verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then look what it says, the last thing. Here it is, a question. Do you believe this? He was talking to Mary Mary and Martha there, and he was asking them, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? See, if you do, then the, the conclusion is that you will live because Christ is God, and because he rose, and because you believe in him, you will rise from the dead. So, that's the question. So come today, if you're a believer already, praise the Lord. If you're not, leave your sin, believe in Jesus who died for sinners like you and I, who will pardon and forgive you of all your sin, who will give you new life, who will give you eternal life, and then give yourself definitely to him alone. And Jesus will save you. Anybody who is a Christian in this room this morning knows that there came a day where they were confronted with their sin and with the gospel message of grace and they had to either believe it or not believe it. And of course, if you believe it, then all the goodness and graces of God come flooding into you and into your life. And the promises and the claims that are true and the warnings are removed from us and we are all left with the promises of God. That's what we're left with. I want to be left with the promises of God. Right? So this morning... I pray that you come to know Christ if you don't know him. And if you don't know, if you need more information, you can speak with me about it, and I'll try to help you out with it. But if you do know him, don't keep this message to yourself. Tell somebody today at dinner, at wherever you're going, about the gospel. Find out where they stand with Christ and give them the truth. And let God use you as an instrument like he used Paul to bring the message of the gospel to those who haven't believed it or heard it yet. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your goodness and grace to us. I pray, Lord, that you would take the word of God today and use it in such a way that you would arrest us and convict us and show us quite plainly where we stand with you. So, Lord, in the end, we could know that because of what Christ has done on the cross, because he defeated Satan and death and rose from the grave, if we believe in him, his promise is that he'll give us eternal life. He'll give us eternal salvation. He'll forgive us of all our sin. He'll give us his spirit that enables us to live for him while we're left here on this earth. And Lord, you've given us the word of God to find out the rest of the information about what you're doing. Thank you, Lord, for all that. Today, we worship you and we give you praise for all that you have and will do. And I pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.